All right, well, good morning and greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here, has been good to be here, and I look forward to the remainder of our time as well. Just wanted to mention before going into the message that next Sunday we would like to have a time of commissioning for Lavon and Beth prior to them leaving on Monday then, and... Uh, it's not a, it's the uh, a commissioning of, of Matthew 28, and just uh, as a church, an extension of our arm, wanting to send them off with our blessing and, and our prayers, and so we would like to do that next, next Sunday. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to... Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and we would like to start reading in verse 15. Colossians 1 verse 15, it reads like this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Then I'd like to flip back to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, and read a passage in there and uh, have our text from these two passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, starting to read in verse 11. It goes like this, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's just pause again for prayer, Father, as we have looked into your word And as we study your word, I would pray that you would rightly divide the word of truth to our hearts. Help us to understand it. Lord, help me to bring clarity as you laid on my heart to share. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth in this word. And we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Some time ago, I was in a conversation with another brother, and in that course of conversation, he introduced me to Alistair Biggs, a Scottish-born pastor who, has, uh, who recorded a series of messages on, uh, uh, on church eldership and, and, and its structure. And uh, so I went online and I listened a little bit to some of uh, the messages that were geared in that uh, series, and it piqued my interest. And so I ordered the set, and I've come to really enjoy what I heard, and it resonated deep within me. I believe there's about 10 messages, and if I'm correct, I've listened to all 10 of them at least three times, and some of them more than that. Uh, I feel like he's very biblical in his content, and uh, it it resonated in my heart. That got me to start thinking. (laughs) Secondly was, as most of you know, uh, I was uh, invited to share some messages at the uh, pre-ordination meetings over in Fairhaven. And uh, they, Sunday morning, they had outlined that I would speak on the, uh, the government and the structure of the church, uh, which I did. And uh, that afternoon, after they had a, a lunch and, and we came home before the evening meeting when there was the ordination, I came home and I picked up the sword and trumpet that the children had brought home from our mailbox. They had uh, come here Sunday morning. And I read an article in there uh, that uh, was called the the made-to-order church life mentality. Who all read that article? Okay. Who all didn't read that article? Well, it's a worthy read. It's a worthy read. The made-to-order church life mentality, the MTO. And uh, this article influenced or, and helped give birth to what I feel like God laid on my heart to share with you this morning. And I was amazed to see how much of what God had laid on my heart that Sunday morning at Fairhaven and what was in that article coincided in the principles that were laid out in that article. And of course, fourthly, I would just say that what gave birth to this message as well was the, the unction of the Holy Spirit who laid it on my heart to share. I'm sure you've noticed that I've entitled the message Declaration, the Declaration of Dependence. In the recent years, I have uh, become aware of a growing sense, a growing anti-shepherd sentiment that chafes and resists the idea of church eldership, but also with that is the... Uh, a a resistance or a push against codependency within the body. Just this week, again, I heard of a congregation that was struggling, is struggling, and uh, if I understand correctly, there's a group of families that have left and and have removed themselves from that body and and are now meeting on their own. And uh, unfortunately, I think it's happening far too many times. And uh, it causes me to be concerned. I wonder if you've ever paused long enough to consider that the nature of man fights against 
codependency. The carnal nature of man is to follow the path of the first Adam to extricate ourselves from God and from each other, to remove ourselves. The spirit of fallen man is prone to independency. Church membership for many seems to be insignificant. And while membership in and of itself does nothing in our relationship with God, the Father, it does do something in our relationship with each other. And uh, I've, I've just sensed like there is a growing discontent. We see a cycle being repeated, a cyclical pattern being repeated that was much of what we see in the Old Testament of man disregarding God's call to become or to come under his leadership. Grandpa Adam was the first to display that independent spirit when the devil came to him with the appeal to become like God. His, that appeal, that drive, that, that desire overpowered the good reasoning within him on his part. And think of what Adam gave in exchange for that independency. What he gave up, I should say. The children of Israel are another prime example of of man's nature to follow his own way. Their desire to detach themselves from God's lordship landed them in a heap of trouble over and over again. We see it happening. It was just a, a cyclical pattern that happened over and over. They repent, they come to God, and then they'd go their own way. And then they come back, and then they go all the, the, their way again. And so we see that happening. Even other individuals in the Old Testament, men and women that we look to as patriarchs of the faith, people who are listed in the, in the book of Hebrews, in the faith chapter, many of them have tainted stories attached to their lives because of the innate nature to move away from God and to allow their, uh, to, to allow their, their own uh, self to take, to take precedence and, and to, to take charge and uh, against their better knowledge. So, when I read a passage of Scripture like we read this morning, the text that we read this morning, I can't help but wonder and ask myself, how is the 21st century Western church doing as it relates to that? How are we doing? Is the Western church codependent or dependent on Christ? Christ dependent, maybe we should say. Is the Western church Christ dependent? And maybe we should make it more pointed than that. Maybe we should ask the question, how is the 21st century conservative Anabaptist followers of Christ doing when it comes to this context? Are we functioning as if God is the head? Or does the evidence of our lifestyle betray man being the head? What is driving groups of people to withdraw from another group of Christ followers and go separate ways. What's driving that? Is Christ behind that? I'm just asking the question. 
And maybe that's still too far removed for us. Maybe we need to get really personal and just ask the question, how is 21st century Berea Christian Fellowship doing when it comes to this subject? How well are we applying God's principle of of dependency, codependency with each other and under the leadership of God? I'd like to go back to the scripture that we looked at where it says that in all things, he, God, may have the preeminence All things. When there is all, how much is left over? How much is eliminated? Nothing, right? That's in all things. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. And the idea here of the word preeminence is the idea of being first in rank or influence. Now let's just pause, let's just push the pause button for just briefly here before going further in the text. And I, and I want to have you think through, help you think through how cultural influences our way of thinking, uh, particularly in the West. Several months ago, I preached a, a message on the kingdom keys. It was the last message in the Ecclesia series that I preached it was the last one on the kingdom keys, and I touched a little bit on that. I want, to, I want to develop this a little bit more because I think there's more to it. And, and I want to just develop that a little bit so if there's a little bit of a crossover, uh, bear with me. I just want to help you think through of, of where we are at today, and I always ask the question, when, when I'm not fully satisfied about where we're at, and when I say we're, I'm, 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 I'm stroking a broad brush. I'm not necessarily talking about here, although it can apply to us. When I'm not fully satisfied, I've, I need to ask myself, how did I get here? How did we end up here? Um, and, and I think it's a good, valid question to ask ourselves. We talked about in that, path, in that message, we talked about the fact that back in the, in the 17th and the 18th century, about 100 to 150 years after the, the era that we refer to as the Dark Ages, that is referred to as the, as the era of Enlightenment thinking. Enlightenment thinkers uh, begin to argue against the, the long-standing class of, of distinction that gave nobility power and privileges that the common folk didn't have. The common folk was, was placed in poverty and, and illiteracy and, and, and in ignorance and, and, and they didn't have a lot of, the common folk didn't have a lot of options at their disposal. People were sick and tired of being told what to do, how to live, how to think, what to do, what not to do. And, and, and living under that tyranny and under that, that heavy thumb of the government, which also, by the way, at that time, was in the control of the church as well for nearly a thousand years. Now think of that. Think about that. See, for nearly a thousand years, autocratic abuse and top-down structures kept the common folk 
in the clutches and in the vice of the clergy and the government. By that time, during that time, the church and the state were so enmeshed and, and so intertwined that it was difficult to tell the one from the other. And so this kind of dominance had tremendous influence on the entire culture. The common person was a mere puppet and, uh, and, and under, under the rule of, of the powers that be. But something shifted in the 17th and 18th century. And uh, what was it? Do you recall what I said that these Enlightenment thinkers, the, 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 um, the uh, doctrine that they promoted, do you remember what it was? It was the equality of man, right? I talked about the equality of man. And out of that thought line, uh, the equality of man became one of the new doctrines that was highly promoted. And nowhere was it embodied more boldly than in the new world. Think about it. That's why hundreds, in fact thousands of people, migrated from the old world to the new. And they still do today, I might add. Because there are some things that are appealing to this idea of equality of thinking or of equality of man. There was a complete paradigm shift in their way of thinking. Now, whether, whether you know it or not, and I think I may have mentioned this, whether you know it or not or think about it or not, the Western world thinks entirely different from most people of the world or from many countries of the world. Let's put it that way. The West thinks in terms of opportunity. The West thinks in terms of freedom. The West thinks in terms of applying yourself and, and anything that you desire is at your fingertips. The question is simply, how bad do you want it? Now, a good case in point is of the current primary runner in the Republic Party who started out his life in the single parent home in the ghettos of Detroit. And even though Ben Carson was raised in, in the housing developments of that city, he had a mother who pushed her sons to succeed. Uh, anyone who has read the biography of Ben Carson, uh, I'm sure has an appreciation for his mother and the tenacity and the strength of his mother. Uh, she was disciplined and she was resolute in her raising of her sons. And it was not until Ben Carson was an adult that he realized that his mother was not able to read. And she covered her inability by getting Ben and his brother Curtis to read stories to her. That's how she hid that inability to read. But her persistence paid off. Eventually, Carson became one of the country's best and the leading neurosurgeons in the West. But you know, even what is even more astounding than that <laughs> is that currently he is running to become the president of the United States. 
starting from the ghettos to the presidency of the United States. Now, now we don't, we don't stop to think about that. But in many countries of this world, that's not an option. That's not an option. Some time ago, Brother Jake did a, did a great job in helping us think through how democracy has, our shaped, has shaped our way of thinking here in the West. And it's very true. The story of Ben Carson seems within our reach because our country was founded on this principle. Now think about this. I want to think, take you back a little bit to the Declaration of Independence. And by the way, just the title of that document, think about the title of that document. The Declaration of what? Independence, okay? Embodies the core values of this philosophy. In that, part of that, let me just bring it out again. It says that men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The question I would have to you this morning is, is that correct? Or maybe I should ask, is that biblical? Is that biblical? Is the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness a, our non-transferable right? That's what that word means, unalienable. Is it, is it our non-transferable right? Now, let me tell you that, that this document, while we don't stop and think about it probably many times throughout the, the day or the year or the weeks or whatever, it has shaped the way that the Western culture thinks today. But, but my lament, my lament is that the pendulum has swung to such a degree to the opposite spectrum that individual rights now trumps all other jurisdictions and authority. Listen, I'm, I'm the first to raise my hand and say that I'm glad that there's no way that I want to regress to the days of the Woolly West where the local sheriff would hang the person that was found uh, guilty of treason. I'm glad we're not there. But I'm also really concerned when I hear of the anti-authority revolt that is sweeping this nation and the attitude that people have towards those who are put in place to keep the laws and to maintain the laws of this land. If something doesn't shift very quickly, we could very possibly see a major civil conflict in this nation. I know that's out there and that's okay. I'm trying to help us think through what is even shaping our thinking as followers of Christ in the West. I would, I would, I would propose to you that the same anti-authority that is so prevalent in secular society has also widely influenced the church. I'm concerned that the crises of authority that, that is real in, in, the, in the compromised church is, is also the same thing that is in, in a Christless society. So the lack of, of commitment to the local body that I see in many places 
and in many, among many people that is problematic in many churches today. If, if we don't agree with brother so-and-so, then, then I'll just, or if I don't agree with the orders and forms as, as, as practice in this specific place, then I will just move on to the next congregation. And, and I, I just have to ask the question, where is God in all of this? Where's the head in all of this? Who is, who is, who is kidding whom? What does the head have to say in this? Does he have a voice in these choices? Or is it one of these unalienable rights that we wish upon church government? So, I want to come back with three concluding thoughts to have you think about as it relates to the passage of scripture that we read this morning. Three concluding thoughts on this subject. The first one that I would like to leave with you is that the essence of authority is defined in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to the text again. And he is the head of the body, the church, God. He is the head. We must establish that fact. He is the head passage in Ephesians but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is head Christ there cannot be a head if he is stripped of authority the trouble with today with too many people today is that they only want enough of Jesus to give them what they think is their right, but not enough to put themselves under his lordship. In fact, the fact is, the word authority has become a dirty word. (laughs) Not only in society, but also in the church too many times. And... By the way, I'm the first one to raise my hand and say there has been far too many situations where authority has been abused. And I'm not here to promote that in any degree, to no degree. But let's not swing out the other way. Whether we like it or not, when it comes to terms of function in the body of Christ, the operates under the principle of authority and if you want to be part of God's body the body of Christ then we must align ourselves with his order of headship there's just no way out of it an independent spirit resists the idea of authority but God does not want us to be independent from him or to each other He wants the body to come together and to work together. And we've seen many examples of that happening here. My heart rejoices with that. And I'm I'm here to keep, I'm here to just keep that before you and to keep promoting that in the body here. I want to help you see through that the principle of authority and, and codependency go hand in hand. The more we value, the more that we appreciate And the more that we place ourselves under God's 
authority upon, uh, under his headship, the more we are going to value body life and function. Think that through. The person that, the person that doesn't see any, any, any need or any value in being part of a local body probably is pretty loose in his line of authority under Christ. Even Christ, who is head over the church, operates under a line of authority. Consider the following passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, how can Christ, how can Jesus, who is God, also be under God? But he does. He places himself under the Father. He places himself in the care of the Father. John, chapter 5, verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. So Jesus is just saying, hey, I can't do anything unless I'm in God's will. Even Jesus said that. John 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus operates under a line of authority that he does only the will of the Father and not his own thing. Twice in Scripture, we we find it recorded that Jesus was amazed. Twice. I think in the King James, it uses the word marvel. He marveled, but in I think it's in the in the NIV, and also if you would look at the at the at the term, it would give the idea of being amazed. Now that's amazing in and of itself, isn't it? That Jesus was amazed? God being amazed? <laughs> well, what amazed him? Well, one time was in the, in the book of Mark. And uh, Mark chapter 6, I believe it was. And uh, that time he was amazed at the people's lack of faith. He says that, that uh, the people's lack of faith caused him to be, not to be able to do any great uh, miracle among them. He could only f- heal a few a few sick people because of the people's lack of faith. And he says, and he was amazed at their lack of faith. There's another time in the New Testament where it says that Jesus was amazed. And do you know where that one is? The centurion. Absolutely. It's the account of the centurion. Now, the centurion was, was a soldier who had other people under him. And he had a servant who was sick. And so he sent a delegation to Jesus to have him come and heal his servant. But before Jesus arrived there, the centurion met him and he said, Hey, look, Jesus, if you just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And then he goes on to say something else. He says, I too am, and the centurion is speaking. He says, I too am a man of authority. And I say to this servant, go, and he, and he goes, and come, and he comes. And to this man, do, and he does it. And then it says that Jesus, after, after the centurion said that, it says Jesus was amazed. Now, what amazed Jesus about that? It, 
I don't know that it was his faith as much as, as I think Jesus was amazed that the centurion understood that Jesus operated under a line of authority. He, he, the, the centurion said, I too am a man, or I also am a man under authority. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to this man, go, come, and he comes. And to that one, go do this, and he, he goes and does it. So he, the centurion understood, just as he was a man of authority, so Jesus was. And he understood the fact that if Jesus would ask the Father, and the Father would deem that his servant would be healed, Jesus would just have to speak the word, and the servant would be healed. And Jesus was amazed that he had this kind of insight. He was amazed that Jesus operated under a chain of command. He knew, again, yeah, like I said, that if, if, that if, that if God willed that his servant be healed, he could, be, he could speak the word and he'd be healed. And friends, I would just like to say that if Jesus operates in a line of, com- of, of in a chain of command in this way, then who are we to think that, that we shouldn't? The whole structure and the order of the church is built on the principle of authority as defined in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to clarify something before I go to the next point. What I'm not promoting here <laughs> is that the pastors are above the laity. But it is true. It is true that Christ, the chief shepherd, has commissioned under-shepherds to administer his rule. Let's go back to Ephesians, where it says that he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, or for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Too many times, people, pastors, have, have assumed responsibility that has not been delegated to them. Shame on us. But at the same time, God has divvied responsibilities to certain individuals in the body, not because they are greater or that they are superior or that they are more important than anyone else in the body. But he has called them to administer certain functions within the body. And he lists three of those here. There are other passages which we're not going to look at today. uh, and, And other functions. But three of them that he lists. It says that they are put there for the equipping of the saints. The word equipping has the idea of of complete furnishing. Part of the responsibility of under-shepherds is to help individuals in the body of Christ to become fully furnished. Or the idea is to become well-rounded, to be mature, to be balanced. And anything, anyone with, with leadership skills understands that when this goal is reached, that person, that individual, that brother or sister in the body of Christ is going to be equipped to do ministry. 
Why wouldn't we be motivated as under shepherds to, to help you achieve that? To help brothers achieve that. So for the equipping of the saints, the complete furnishing, the second thing that he mentions is for the work of the ministry. The word ministry here has a close association to the word deacon that we find in other passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Again, the goal of the under-shepherds is to grow those in the congregation uh, in his care or those under his care to learn to be servants to each other, to be ministers. The work of the ministry in the church and my heart is so blessed when I, when I just pause to consider how many ways, and I'm just going to talk here personally, when I, when I, when I look across the, the, some of the ministry that's happening that us pastors aren't even involved in, uh, there's just a joy that wells up within me when I see people being involved in this ministry and that ministry and, and serving here and serving there, that that brings tremendous joy to to pastors. Uh, that's what it's all about, to learn to become ministers, to learn to become deacons, to learn how to serve and care for each other and those around us. And the third thing that he mentions is that they have been put in place for the edifying of the body of Christ. Lastly, for the under-shepherds in this list, is the pursuit of building the body. Now see, as shepherds, let's just take a, let's just take a literal shepherd. We, it's hard for us to correlate to that because uh, I think the, the Middle East and their culture there had a, had a distinct advantage to their understanding of, of shepherding that we don't have today. But it really wasn't up to the shepherd to grow the flock. However, he knew that if he would take his sheep to the right pasture, if he would give them ample food and ample water and care for them properly, that growth would be inevitable. So the focus is not to grow in number, but to take care and to shepherd and to, and to, to supply with food and nourishment. And when that is there, the growth is inevitable. That's the byproduct. And so Christ has put under shepherds within the context of the body to administer some of these functions in the body of Christ. Thirdly, being under God's authority will inevitably call for brotherhood accountability. Let's just go back here and look at what the scripture says. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every part or joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's go back and break that down a little bit. Being joined together. Notice the reciprocal motion that takes place when we follow God's order. The phrase joined and knit together gives us the premise that we are starting with independent spirits or independent individuals <laughs> and, and, and hence the need and the reason to be joined and knit together and every person in the body of Christ 
is joined together like a physical body is with, with, with bones and, 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 and joints. This past Thursday evening, a cousin of mine from Colorado stopped in for the evening and, and for a meal. And during the course of the evening, course of the conversation, we reminisced about what took place three days before their prescribed wedding date. Irv, her husband, uh, lived in Illinois, and, and, and my cousin lived here in this area, and he had his best friend stop from Kansas stop by at Illinois, and they spent a day together, then they were going to come on out here to Indiana for the wedding. Uh, on Wednesday, before the wedding on Saturday, him and his friend climbed the family silo and went up to the top. They looked around. They enjoyed the scenery. And on his way down, Irv misstepped, and he fell 30 feet down to the roof below. Well, he knew immediately that he broke his wrist because he said it was pointed at an odd shape. I think it was maybe this arm. I'm not sure. What he didn't know is that his neck was also broken. And so he drove himself to the doctor, the local doctor, about seven miles down the road, drove himself to the doctor. They, in turn, sent him, him, not by ambulance, they sent him to the hospital 30 miles away. And so he drove 30 miles to the next hospital. And because he walked in to the emergency room and only had a wrist that was broken, he sat there for two hours in the waiting room. Finally, his neck hurt so bad, he went to the attendant and said, can I lay down somewhere? My, my neck is hurting really, really bad. And so they, they let him lay down, and eventually they got to him. They took an x-ray, and all of a sudden, he said, everything broke loose. All of a sudden, he wasn't allowed to move anything anywhere. And he told us what took place in the next three months of traction and getting back into shape again. It was a miracle that his neck, literally his joint was offset. It was a miracle that it was not severed. The doctor was amazed that he was not paralyzed from, in fact, the very next day, same, same uh, joint in his neck by another man was paralyzed from the neck down. Same joint, same fracture. At the end, toward the end of his time in the hospital, they took, and he said this was actually more painful than the, the, the break in the neck itself. They took a, a bone part of a bone out of his out of his leg and they fused that joint together in his neck they went through the front and um, he said it felt like they ripped the esophagus out and um, laid it aside and, and went through the front and they fused that joint together now that is not what we're talking about here what it says joined and knit together uh, his joint at that point in his neck is now fused together. And when you see him, he sort of, he sort of does have a, a stiff neck. Not that he's a stiff neck people, but, but it is fused together. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking more about the joints and ligaments of a ball in a socket that work with each other and that allow mobility and flexibility in the body of Christ. That is the picture that he's drawing for us here. Joined together with socket and ball. And, and how can we, 
how can we? I, I appeal to you. How can we sever ourselves from the body that we are joined together with and come off to ourselves and say, we're going to start something over here? I, I, I just give caution. I give caution to that. Rather than being restrictive in nature, as was the case with Irv's neck, the codependency that is formed in brotherhood accountability will foster growth and maturity. The next phrase, it says that that, uh, by that which every joint, no, uh, by that which uh, every part does its share. Brotherhood Accountability requires energy from everyone. It's like the tandem bicycle that, has, that allows both parties to pedal at the same time to project the bike forward. However, when one stops pedaling, it creates drag for the one that is pedaling. Another example of this would be of, uh, of a horse, a draft horse, that is pulling weight. I think I first heard this, uh, this concept from Daryl Yoder. One draft horse that is able to pull 8,000 pounds by himself. If you put two of them together, how much can they pull? Can they double their, can they double their weight? No, they can't double their weight. They can triple it. (laughs) Two of them together can pull 24,000 pounds. And that's the idea here. By that which every part does its share. There's a clear lesson of teamwork that takes place, that resembles what takes place in the body of Christ when each person does its share. Uh, again, I would just like to put the appeal out to you <laughs> that, that when, th- when there are things, and I, and I have to do the same thing. I mean, as a, as, a, as, a, as a pastor, there's sometimes that some things just really look big in front of me and, and, and then all I can see is just that thing. <laughs> and I fail to see all of the other good things that are happening around me. <laughs> So I would just appeal to you that if there are things that disgruntle you a little bit within the body of Christ, step back and just ask yourself, am I doing my part? Am I doing my share of the work? Am I pulling my part? And it's possible that you're not if you're dissatisfied. So think in terms of what can I do? How can I contribute? How can I make this place a better place? How can I make this? You know what? John 15, John 17. When the world sees brothers and sisters working in love, it will be a message to the world. They, they will sit up and take notice. What's happening over there, that group of people? Wow, they work together. They actually love each other. They function together. Lastly, again, growth will be the byproduct of a body who embraces codependency 
Conflicts that seemingly cannot be resolved come as a result of this principle being violated. Marriages that disintegrate are couples who have not come to terms with their independent spirit. Children who rebel at their parents are youth who are bent on insisting on their own way. Church members who part with other members of the body of Christ have not learned to apply the healing oil of codependency. Brothers and sisters, I would make a declaration to you today. First of all, that we would come under the authority of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, to value brotherhood accountability. Let's pray and then I'm going to ask Keith to close. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I come before you this morning. And I would just pray that as we, as we look at your word and what all it has to give us, Lord, I'm sure there's much more that could have been said and possibly should have been said, yet we pray that you would bring clarity to the things that were, were not in this, understood easily uh, but, uh, and, and maybe even things that, that, uh, that I missed, Lord, but that you would continue to speak and use this, use this passage of Scripture to bring truth and uh, relativity to our, to our lives. Guide and keep us, direct us. We give you thanks. In your name we pray. Amen.